we have been teaching a series on the sacraments, and our reasoning behind this was to help teach our hearts to be more reverential towards the things of God. Um, one of the drums I beat regularly is bemoaning the secularness of the American church. Every church in every nation, in every county, in every region around the world, if they're not careful, they will allow the culture to affect them in their Christianity rather than allow Christianity to change the culture that surrounds them. And the American church has uh, honestly all but fallen completely to the secularism and the carnality and the marketing strategies that is Americana. Now, I am an American citizen. I was born in 1976. I'm a child of the bicentennial. And I'm American through and through. We were in D.C. two weeks ago, and there were several times walking around our nation's capital. I was moved to, I wouldn't say full-fledged tears, but wet eyes. Got to see Old Glory at the Museum of Natural His or American History and to see our Capitol buildings and see all the Christian quotes from our founding presidents is emotional. It's powerful to go to Arlington and to see the reverence there at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And I, I'm, I am proud that I am an American, but America is devolving and declining quickly, and it's taking the church with it. And I blame the pastors uh, because pastors are typically men. Sometimes there are women. Uh, but I blame the preachers because they're carnal and they have egos and they don't walk with God like they should. And because we have weak preachers, we have weak churches. Because we have weak churches, we have weak saints. And because we have weak saints, we have no power. So in teaching on the sacraments, one of my aims has to be to teach us reverence for the things that are ordained in the scripture and the gospels that we might see more power. We kind of hit upon that when we saw that the definition of a sacrament is a ritual that makes power available. So let me do a little bit of a review again. We've been reviewing the same thing for four weeks now in a row. And I was raised Southern Baptist. And growing up Southern Baptist, I can look back now and realize we, we honored two sacraments, though we never called them sacraments. We had water baptism and communion as our two sacraments. But there are so much more. That's why we've been looking at these and dissecting them. And we, I in my studies have had to do a deep dive into the Talmud to understand stuff and now even to the Catholic catechism or catechism of the Catholic Church. And I want to get, put this disclaimer out there. We are not Catholic. We're not going to become Catholic. We're not going to track Catholic. But their doctrinal statement called the Catechism of the Catholic Church, I have a copy of it. It's 800 pages. I've never found another denomination with more line upon line, strategically, logically laid out doctrine. And for whatever it's worth, I think other denominations could benefit by modeling, not everything because we don't all believe the same thing, but at least having some kind of concrete statement of faith. We are a word of faith, charismatic Pentecostal church, and a lot of that I even cringe at now. But even the Word of Faith Pentecostal Charismatic Movement is really only about 100 years old, 115 years old in this nation. And in 115 years of Pentecostalism since the 1905 Azusa Street Revival, uh, the Pentecostal movement has experienced the slap chop, which is the old slap chop where you took some, it dices, it slices, it purees. The Pentecostalism in this nation is now a thousand different flavors because we have no concise statement or doctrine. Now, good, bad, or di different, I don't agree with everything the Catholics do or say, but they're all the same no matter where you find them in the earth. Now, they have their differences and they have their issues and 
God knows their current pope is a heretic and an apostate. Can't say that to them because they revere him as in the lineage of Peter, and that's another side discussion, not for this morning. Just want to let you know why I stand on all this. You have to be mature enough to look at what other people believe, see how they got to it from the scriptures, and then say, well, I agree with that or I don't. Maturity can agree and disagree and not become enemies. I don't believe every Catholic's going to make heaven, but I don't believe all of you are either. Just to be fair, I don't know a single pastor who believes their whole congregation's making heaven. You always go quiet on that. Most of my pastor's friends say, if half my church makes it, I'll rejoice. So that's where we, what, 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 what? So you can stay awake and respond when eternity is on the line. So like the author of Hebrews says, uh, we believe better things of you though we thus speak. So <clears throat> I'll let you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So let's review sacraments real quick because a lot of this is new to me. And I've been saved for 40 years now. And I've been in the church for 40 years except for a year in college where I was really backslidden. So there's just so much out there that we don't know. And it gets harder and harder to teach Christians this because they live on social media and not the Bible. And social media just proves to the Lord Jesus that Christians can be discipled, just not in line with the word. And you all have access to every Bible ever written in the palm of your hand on an app. And some of you are still really lame when it comes to your understanding of Scripture. You ought to be able to be in that word and learn something every day about your God. But that being said, there are many things still to be discovered, so I don't know why we're watching another cat video or seeing what Aunt Agnes posted on Facebook. Who cares about Aunt Agnes? Post on there, you're going to hell, Agnes. You and your thousand cats. Repent and get into church. Sacrament comes from the Greek word or the Latin word, sacramentus. But the Latin word sacramentus is the equivalent of the Greek word mysterion, which is mystery. And that's what a sacrament is, a mystery. Mysteries are spoken of 27 times in the New Testament. This is all review from the last few weeks. Sacraments are then rituals that reflect some of the New Testament's mysteries. There are doctrines we hold as Christians that we can only explain so far, and so they are called mysteries. The Trinity is a mystery. How can one God be three persons? It's a mystery. Salvation, God, Christ in us, the hope of glory, that's a mystery. We can explain it so far, and then we go, uh, I accept it by faith. Thus, it's a mystery. A sacrament is a ritual that reflects or symbolizes a spiritual truth. And the, the definition that really blew my understanding away was the concept that even the Catholics recognize it's not just a religious activity, it's a ritual that makes power available. And that definition means if it weren't for the performance of the ritual, there would be no power. We looked at water baptism first because it makes power available, as is evident with Christ's baptism, as is evident with the Ethiopian's baptism. And even in our own testimonies, in our own services, we've had supernatural things happen in our baptismal font over here. And then I had a good Baptist friend who was actually one of my geology professors from 30 years ago. He was often in Zimbabwe preaching the gospel. And even as a Baptist, they would take converts down to the river and water baptize them. And he said they would give the confession of faith in Christ. But when we took them to the river, that's when demons came out of them. And Dr. Helton was his name. He was a member of First Baptist over here. He's in heaven now. Passed away two years ago because of COVID. He was in his 80s. Um, he said, Chris, you need to come with me to Zimbabwe. I said, well, actually, I've been a couple of times. He said, have you ever seen demons come out at a water baptismal? I said, no, sir. He said, the Baptists haven't seen it either. 
That's power made available. I mean, I, I couldn't explain it, still can't. How is it they give their life to Christ and they follow to the water and believe his baptism, but the demons don't come out till they go into the water? Sort that out. And then we looked at uh, communion and how it makes power available because if you don't do it right, Paul says, for this reason, many of you are weak, sick, and asleep prematurely. That means there's power available there to sustain you or to judge you and condemn you. So we don't have to judge you. Communion does. That's New Testament. The Catholics call the practice of all sacraments a celebration. Now, that is profound to me. Now, let me say this. I'm going to quote the Catholic Catechism a lot this morning. It doesn't mean we agree with all of it. It doesn't mean they understand all of it. We're going to find a lot in common with the catechism of the Catholic Church, and we're not going to become Catholic. And I want you to know that just because the catechism teaches it doesn't mean they all understand it or that it's taught regularly. But at the same time, I teach stuff regularly. You guys don't all get it, don't all live by it, couldn't repeat it to save your soul, and I'm still teaching it. So we're going to cut them some slack because I cut yins some slack. But I do think it's fascinating that they call the sacraments a celebration because it's something they believe God has given them to do. And if God's given them to do it, then it's cause to celebrate. And we take these things seriously, and we should, but at the same time, there should be a celebration that we're getting to do something for God that makes his power available. We, I think we make water baptism pretty celebratory. People are excited and family comes and everybody hunkers down over on that side of the sanctuary so they can see the baptismal and we cheer and clap. But we can do the same, I think, with communion. And I think we ought to do the same even with what we're going to cover this morning, which is penance, which is probably foreign to about 95% of us here. But let's move on here. They call it a celebration because if God is present to help, why not celebrate? A sacrament is a material sign of invisible mystery, and so the seven sacraments of the Catholic or high churches are baptism, communion, penance, which we're covering this morning, confirmation, which we'll cover next week, ordination into ministry, anointing the sick, and then marriage. And I am once again prepared that if I, once we teach on marriage as a sacrament, there may be a handful of you, five couples, probably no more than six or seven, that will be under a conviction that you want to renew your vows because you did not honor God with your marriage ceremony. Now, maybe you are now, and that's great, but maybe the, the celebration you had was with the Elvis impersonator in Vegas, or maybe you went to the justice of the peace, which I can't think of a higher way to dishonor God in the marriage covenant than to go to the justice of the peace. You might as well get married on the deck of a Navy ship with the admiral. Why not do it in the house of God, before God, before his people, before a man of God? Anyway, we'll get into that in a few weeks. So let's talk about penance. Have we got our thing up there? I just want you to know how to spell it. So Katie, Thorpe, I just have, this is the only slide I have. There is no way for me to make slides out of it this morning. So just listen real intently. I'm going to quote heavily from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, also called the Triple C, uh, for time's sake. This is not to say all Catholics believe this or practice this, but this is still part of their faith and doctrine. The Baptists have what they call the Baptist faith and doctrine. Pentecostals have what they call, well, I don't know, because that's about how we are anymore. But let me just read some of my notes, and we'll look at a few scriptures along the way. Uh, I want to look at this, uh, this, this sacrament called penance because it'll help us gain a deeper theological understanding of sin. So this sacrament of penance is all about confession of sin. And we'll look at exactly what penance is. I want us to have a deeper theological understanding of sin because the Bible does teach a theology of sin. There is this doctrine of sin, and we live in a day where 
We don't feel like we need to confess when we're wrong. We don't even feel like we owe each other an apology. And it doesn't help that for the last 15 years, we've had hyper-grace heretics that have all come out of the Word of Faith movement who've spent the last 15 years hell-bent to teach the body of Christ we don't have to say we're sorry anymore or confess sin anymore. So it doesn't help the body of Christ, especially the former powerful segment, which was the Word of Faith Pentecostal, when they don't even feel like they have to confess sin anymore. Now, my dear friend, Pastor Jeremy in Texas says, if your grace doctrine can't be applied to your five-year-old, it's a horrible doctrine. And by that, he means everybody expects their five-year-old to say, I'm sorry. But when you have teaching heretics, teaching the body of Christ, you don't have to say you're sorry anymore. Well, does that go for your five-year-old? Or how about your wife when she has an affair? Do you want her to say, I'm sorry? So we've lost the theology of sin. And part of my purpose behind looking at some of the Catholic catechism is they spell out line upon line in line with Scripture what sin is and what it does. And I'm going to read some of you their quotes because I haven't found a better doctrinal statement anywhere in my 40 years of being a Christian. And that should tell us that not, even though not every Catholic maybe believes this, it's still part of what they built upon for 1,400 years. Because when's the last time you read a book about sin from the charismatic movement? When's the last time you heard a sermon condemning it? Last week? <laughs> All right. You know what I'm saying. Just play along, Nick. Just play along. I don't know, man. It's good. I'm ready. Ready. He's still a disciple in the works. We're still... Fascinating enough, the Catholic Church recognizes two sacraments for the purpose of divine healing. One being the obvious, which is what they call extreme unction or the anointing of the sick with oil. And the other, the sac the other sacrament of healing is penance. So they believe both anointing the, oil, uh, the sick with oil and confession of sin will bring healing. And they base that on the Bible. Because Jesus would say, your sins be forgiven, they take up your bed and walk. You see Jesus over and over again healing people and forgiving their sins in the same swipe. And James' gospel epistle says the same thing. If there any be sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Let him pray for them, anointing them with oil. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. The Lord shall raise them up. And if they commit any trespasses, they shall be forgiven. That's James chapter 5. So there are many other witnesses. You see healing and forgiveness of sins going hand in hand. The Catechism of the Catholic Church has one of the most thoughtful theological dissections of sin and its effects on humanity that I have ever encountered in all my studies. And the Catechism systematically breaks down how to turn from sin back to right standing with God. And they add this, which I've never heard taught anywhere. Not just how to repent and turn back to God, but how to receive fellowship with your church. That's very important to the Catholics, and it's something our modern church culture doesn't understand because if we get offended, we just leave and go find a lukewarm church that will put us on the worship team. So the modern church has totally lost the concept of God has called you to a local church, and that's where you're assigned. And you don't just get to go abandon it because you disagree or because you get into sin or because the pastor in that congregation has a higher standard than your me uh, mediocre Christianity that you're assigned to that church and that church will sail with or without you and you can go jump in another little dinghy somewhere, but it doesn't mean you're going to finish your race. And so I'm reading this in the last week, studying the catechism. I think, 
do I believe that? And I thought I wrote a whole book on it called Parachutes for Sheep. How to leave a church right and land at the next one where you're supposed to be. So a lot of the catechism on the sacrament of penance has to do with getting right with the church you betrayed. Pretty profound stuff. So let me give you the Catholic explanation for sin. This is the Catholic doctrine on sin, and I'm going to tell you, you're not going to disagree with any of it. Sin is before all else an offense against God, a rupture of communion with Him. Sounds nice and Baptist to me. At the same time, it damages communion with the church. For this reason, conversion... And this is where we'll have to slow down and and give you their semantics. Conversion to them is what we'd call repentance. For this reason, conversion entails both God's forgiveness and reconciliation with the church, which are expressed and accomplished liturgically by the sacrament of penance and reconciliation. So we're discussing the sacrament of penance, but it has multiple names. The sacrament of reconciliation, the sacrament of forgiveness, the sacrament of contrition, the sacrament of penance, all accomplishing the same thing. But when the Catholic views penance, the sacrament of penance, we're not just restoring someone back to right standing with God. We're restoring them to right standing with their church. Now, this also acknowledges the fact that there are some sins that you just deal with because they're minor and others that are more egregious. So we have to be clear there. You know, you getting in a fight with your wife on the way to church isn't necessarily going to hurt us as a local body. But if that doesn't get repented of, that could become a divorce. And that will hurt the local church because now we're forced to take sides. And then who's staying and who's leaving and where are the kids going? So you see how even the Catholic Church talks about venial sins and um, mortal sins. They have two categories. And we're not into all that, but I just want to throw it out there because I know it. They recognize there are sins that are minor and there are sins that are major. But minor sins, our doctrine would say minor sins always lead to major sins. And, you know, you struggling with porn last night is not going to really hurt us today. But if you become an addict and you're on the worship team, you're hurting us. If you're an addict and you're working in the nursery or you're working back there with our kids, you're going to hurt us. If you're addicted to porn and you're married, that's going to have an issue. That's going to hurt the local church. So we can see this concept that is also very rooted in Scripture that we can't just say, well, my sins are none of your business. If they're hurting the local body, it is our business. And we have to keep in mind, we, we don't just get to live any way we want to. If we're serious about this kingdom, we live that we might help one another. And the more clean each and every one of you are in your private lives, the stronger the corporate anointing, the more we can help others who are coming in filthy. The name of the game as a Christian is you're getting stronger and you're getting cleaner. You're not trying to see how worldly you can be and still make heaven. So let's keep reading here. Lest anyone be wary of where this all might be going, even the catechism's next section states, right after this quote I just gave you, it's the title of the section is, Only God Forgives Sins. So I know we all have a concept because the whole sacrament of penance is the confessional booth. But they're very quick to say, Only God Forgives Sins. Also important here and lost on most mainstream theology is the understanding that sin breaks a believer's fellowship with their local body. Now, again, this is very strong in the Catholic Church. We maybe don't want to confess that publicly, but we believe it, and we experience this phenomenon even if we don't express it, because every one of us seem to instinctually retreat from fellowshipping with saints 
when we get dirty. Every pastor is a witness this. Somebody goes from sitting on the front row, kind of sitting somewhere in the middle, to sitting in the very back. And then all of a sudden, they're like, all of a sudden, they're only coming to two services out of three, then, then one out of three, then one every two weeks, then one a month, and then they're gone. And then we ask, has anybody seen, has anybody seen uh, Sally lately? Well, I, she hadn't even hung out with us in a while. Even though we may not express it in Catholic terms, we have experienced it, that sin does begin to pull you away from your church and the fellowship of the saints that you're called to fellowship with. And that's by design by the enemy. We seem to instinctually retreat from fellowshipping with the local body the more we sin, either because of the sin or in order to participate in it more. Years ago, I had a, a young man come to me. He was like a son in the faith to me. He helped put us on television years ago. He learned, taught himself on YouTube how to do all the editing and all that. And he just out of the blue came and sat down in my office and said, Pastor, I'm leaving. And I said, what? Why? He said, because there's some certain sins I've never been able to do before, and I want to do them, and I know I can't do them and stay in church here. And, and I said, let me guess, drinking and fornicating. Yeah. And I said, well, I can't stop you, but you know this is going to cost you dearly. He said, I, I know, but I want to participate. I want to do it. And so then I set his friends upon him in the church. Go see what you can do, talk, and talk sense into the boy. But he left anyway, and he really suffered a lot for a long time. He's actually back in a church now. He's doing well. He's married, but he really hurt his life for several years, many, many, many years. And it's almost instinctual that when you begin to live sinfully, it is going to pull you slowly away from your church. You'll start skipping services to go participate in sin. And then when you get and wake up, that sin so condemns you, you don't want to come back to fellowship. Now, and let me also interject this here. I'm teaching all this so that we'll have a greater fear of sin, a greater respect Three major heretics I can think of right now from the Word of Faith movement, and I will call their names, are Creflo Dollar, not because of his prosperity teaching, but because he teaches you don't have to repent of sin. Andrew Womack, not because he's a cowboy out of Texas, but because he teaches you don't have to confess your sin. And Joseph Prince, not because he's Malaysian and has a funny accent, but because he is called the Prince of Grace, and he's taken grace and converted it to lasciviousness, fulfilling the heresies of Jude chapter 1. These men have taught us we don't have to confess sin anymore. And so we don't have a fear or a dread of it. We just think, well, it doesn't matter. I'm forgiven. It doesn't matter. If you're forgiven, why does it break fellowship? And if you're forgiven, then let your spouse go have all the adultery they want and still take them home into your bed. If sin doesn't break fellowship. All right, let's keep reading. We certainly avoid the local pastor and the elders when we get into sin. And I, some of you are doing that this morning, just, just to be honest with you. You don't ever come talk to me or my wife because you know you're in sin. But you won't fully leave here because this is all you know. So you're actually like a wishbone, and we're not sure how you're going to break, but you're about to. Wishbones never break down the middle. This service is also designed to be a call to serious repentance. If sin isn't rejected, it will pull a Christian away from the body of Christ altogether, not just their local church, not just their body of believers, but from the body of Christ altogether. The local body is just part of that. 
First Baptist across the street, my dear friend, Pastor Scott, that's a local body. Scott Parkinson, Stephen Street, that's a local body. Pastor Bobby Davis, Life Church, that's a local body. It won't just pull you away from the local body that you're called to, but the body of Christ in particular, and that puts you in the territory of the great falling away and eternal damnation. Eternal damnation does not set upon a believer overnight because we'd reject it. No, it starts little by little by little by you hiding things and sneaking things and not sharing things. The work accomplished by the sacrament of penance, and again, this is the Catholic understanding. We don't practice it quite like they do, but I hope that you'll see we do in some forms practice the concept of it, though we're not even aware of it yet. When I explain this, you'll say, ah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Remember, a sacrament is a ritual that makes power available. So this, and again, I'm quoting, the, the work accomplished by the sacrament of penance for the believer will pardon from them from God's mercy for the offense committed against him. And they at the same time are reconciled with the church which they have wounded by their sins and who by its love. Now, I like this. This is how the Catholics see the church. By the church's love, example, and prayers have labored for the sinner's conversion. You leave, we intercede for you, and we stay faithful. Now, the re one of the ways it hurts us is that you get too sinful, we have to sit you down from serving around here because I don't want that rebellion sewn into our kids or greeting this, the visitor. So you hurt us because now we have to find your replacement. The, the deception is you can be dirty in private and keep serving God at the same capacity, and that's a fallacy. The catechism continues, this sacrament uh, makes the whole power, the whole power of the sacrament of penance consists in restoring us to God's grace and joining us with him again in intimate fellowship. So we would agree with that. Penance, what we would call repentance, restores us to God's grace and joins us with him in an intimate friendship. So to reiterate, reiterate this point, sin doesn't just hurt the individual, it hurts the church to which the believer belongs. And thus true repentance requires restoration to the local church as well as to God. Now, again, we're, when we think about the sacrament of penance, this is the Catholic ritual of going to confession and confessing your sin to a priest who they believe, we'll look at this in a second, stand in God's place. We don't do that here, but we have had moves of the Holy Ghost in times past, because we are a Pentecostal church, where the spirit of conviction would fall upon people and folks would stand up in the sanctuary and publicly confess sin. Anybody here for some of those services in times past? Yep. And it's uncomfortable because that's, that's the whole direction of the service. And your heart starts going, forgive me for looking at that. Forgive me for saying that. Forgive me for drinking that. I don't care if it's 20 years ago. I repent now because I don't want to have to stand up and confess it before everybody. But for those people, the Spirit of God came upon them in such a convicting manner. For whatever reason, the only way they felt they could be purged is a public confession of sin. And those are what I call pucker services because everything about you is puckering. You're like, mmm, boy, this is uncomfortable. We had moves of God when I first took over. We were trying to, we were really, a couple people needed to publicly repent for their egregious sin. And back in those days, Miss Barb Kutzinger was still alive. She passed away of cancer uh, not long after these stories. She would always raise her hand to repent. And I would just say in my heart, oh, Miss Barb, you're the purest person in this whole church. And you have to call on her. And this is a Sunday night service or a Wednesday night. And Miss Barb would stand up and she'd say, I need to repent. Miss Barb, all right, what do you need to repent of? 
And she'd say, I've wasted too much of my evenings watching the TV Guide channel. And the rest of us feel like scoundrels. <laughs> Miss Barb, we forgive you. I know the Lord does. I appreciate your honesty. Now sit down, and I hate you for making the rest of us feel like dirtbags. <laughs> but it was so, so strong on her heart. She just is how she had to get it off. I think that beats the Catholics 10 to 1 because that was in front of the whole church, not just a priest who can't even see her face. <laughs> the true repentance requires restoration to God and the local church. And alas, neither of these seem to be very important to many Christians today. And so we ask why. So the reason for this is a cultural revolution that has been set upon us for over 100 years, and it's really coming to fruition now. The American church, and that is every one of us in here for the most part, we're now more indoctrinated with two doctrines, two movements, more than we are Christian doctrine. Those two movements are called emotivism and selfism. These are secular movements that we don't even realize define us more than Christian doctrine does. Emotivism is the idea that all moral choices are nothing more than expressions of what the choosing individual feels is right. Basically, what's right is what seems right to you. This is the book of Judges, and everybody did that which was right in his own eyes. One theologian said, I'm not sure we should extract any doctrine out of the book of Judges because it's, the whole book is defined by doing what seems right to you. The book of Judges is nothing but a story of bar barbarism and craziness but everybody did that which was right in their own eyes. So emotivism is the idea that all moral choices are nothing more than expressions of what the choosing individual feels right. That means you can't hold me accountable because it's what's right to me. What's good for you is good for you, but don't push it on me. Oh, and now we've learned the Christianese and we'll say, well, you're just being legalistic. You're just trying to control me. No, I'm trying to bring you back to the scriptures. If you reject the scriptures, you're damned. If we don't have the scriptures as our common ground, then we have no accountability to anyone. So really, you can tell when you've got an apostate or a reprobate when you can't take them back to the scriptures and say, honey, what you're doing violates the word. And I call you to repentance. Now, the other way we hurt people is we just wink at their sin and keep having fellowship with them when they've already violated God and violated the local body. And we just keep feeding them. We sneak the, the reprobate. We sneak the prodigal food so they don't hurry up and get to the end of the pig meal. Selfism is the belief that the liberation of the individual's will is the greatest good. Basically, selfishness, that liberating my wants is the greatest good there is. So selfism is the worship of self. And all of this is a rejection of the body of Christ. Because we are one body, and your decisions do affect the rest of the body. Selfism also redefines love as the emotion that would never dare get in the way of me and my pleasure. So modern man says, if you love me, don't get in the way of me and what pleases me. No, if I love you, I'm going to rebuke you and say what you're doing is wrong. It's sinful. You're hiding. You're lurking. You're like a polecat sneaking in, sneaking out. <laughs> I did somebody, or I saw a YouTube video where this farmer had this, um, this game camera set up, and he had a gopher and the gopher seemed to know that the game camera was set up and the gopher would come every day and eat a different vegetable staring into the <laughs> camera. It's hysterical. And you see a gopher chew, it's obnoxious. I was about to say like some of your kids chew, but that would be a little bit of a low blow. But like, we have to tell our kids, shut your mouth, you're not an animal. Some of the adults were never taught that. 
the blatant flagrancy of this gopher chewing up the farmer's crops right to the game camera, that's how some Christians sin and treat the local church. You just come and go and act like you're not doing anything wrong. You, you skip service and don't tell anybody in leadership, I won't be here because I'm going to go hang out with a boyfriend. Why can't you tell anybody? What are you secretly doing? What are you sneaking to do, you polecat? I mean, if you want an easy church, go find a seeker-friendly one that will lie to you, give you hot coffee, and send you to hell. But if you want to finish your race, there's some accountability expected. So what is penance? Well, it's a ritual or ceremony of repentance and restoration. This is where we're going to begin to differ with the Catholics because we don't make a ceremony out of it. Yet, I think if we could take this a little bit more serious, take our own repentance a little bit more serious and, oh, Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me. And like, you know, Catholics genuflect. That means that's when they take a knee. If we could genuflect in our heart and bow in our heart and say, oh God, like Jesus said, smite your breast and say, oh God, have mercy on me and make a little bit bigger deal out of it than just, oh God, forgive me. I almost smacked one of my kids the other day. I said, don't forget, we got to bless the food. And so one of my kids said, blessed. And I said, which stupid kid in my church did you learn that from? I said, don't you ever pray over our food in that retarded manner. I don't know where you learned it from, probably our youth, probably my children's church, because you didn't learn it from me, though. You bow your head and you bless this food because God supplied it for us. We're not just going to go, blessed. What are you, some baller? It's so disrespectful. But that's how we treat repentance sometimes. I repent. Now, to the, credit, the Catholics, I give credit. They take it a lot more serious. And I don't want to be a priest. I don't want to hear your sins. But maybe if that's how we did it, you would think twice before you screwed up again. Now, again, I'm not interested in being that. I don't want a booth. I don't want a confessional. I got more important things to do, like take a nap, than hear about your sins. <laughs> this is the sacrament that involves the confession to the priest. And we might be quick to reject this notion as religious, legalistic, but if we consider the weighty effects of our sin upon our lives, then the notion of making our regular private repentance uh, a little less flippant might be of great help. We, let's, let's not be so flippant. If we have sinned against our God, we should probably consider the weightiness. It broke our fellowship with him. It broke our fellowship with our spouse or our kids or our church family. Again, I'm not, I'm not interested in hearing your sin. I don't, I don't want to know it. I often, truth be told, by the Spirit of God and the, and the Word of Knowledge, I often know it, and you don't know that I know it. I don't want to know it. And usually the Lord tells me that so I can pray for you. But if we could maybe take our sin a little bit more serious and understand that it's broken our fellowship with God, and it's a canker, and the paycheck thereof is still death, we might take it a little bit more serious. Now, why do the Catholics believe a priest is necessary? Well, they base that on Scripture. Matthew 16 says, The Lord says to Peter, uh, Thou art the rock, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and unto you give the keys of the kingdom. 
And whatsoever you bind on earth, because that's what keys do, they bind things and they loose things, shall be bound on earth, and whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. And they teach that that is the setting free of sin or the retention of sin, because, again, the next verse they use is John 21. He breathed on the disciples, said, Receive you the Holy Ghost, and whosoever sins you remit, they shall be remitted, and whosoever sins you retain, that shall be retained. So the Catholic doctrine on that point says the apostles have the ability to forgive sins, in line with what they believe Jesus was teaching there, and they have the opportunity to maintain them, absolve them or retain. And then the binding and loosing is the authority to retain someone in the fellowship of the church or excommunicate them, bind them to the church or loose them from the church. Now, we do that. We excommunicate people maybe twice in my 16 years of pastoring, but people become so sinful they don't want to submit. We have to kick them out. We have to make a show of them publicly. And there are six New Testament reasons to excommunicate people from the local church. So, I mean, again, we're not very far out of line with what the Catholics have done, just not exactly how they practice it. We reject the belief or the need for priests like they have because of 1 Peter 2. You should be there, right? You've been there for 15 or 20 minutes. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, You also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house. You are a holy priesthood. We don't believe in a hierarchy of priests like fivefold ministers. We believe that we're all a holy priesthood because that was the intent of God in Exodus chapter 19. And the Jews failed that, or back then they were called Hebrews. The Hebrews failed that, so then only the Levites ended up becoming priests. But now we see the, the will of God being able to circle around and be reestablished. We're all a holy priesthood now because we've all been given the ministry of reconciliation. We can all now lead people to Jesus Christ. We can all teach them how to repent. We can teach them and pray with them to confess sin and lead a sinner to Christ. Or as Galatians 6.1 says, you that are spiritual, if you see a brother overtaken in a fault, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, thus you also be tempted. So we have a commandment in Galatians 6.1, as believers, granted you've got to be mature according to 6.1, that if you see a brother overtaken in a fault, restore such a one. That's the ministry of a priest. So we reject the Catholic concept of limited authority to bishops, and then under them are the priests, the bishops' helpers. Uh, but I want you to understand why they do what they do and why they believe what they believe. It is based on the Bible. We just come to a very different conclusion on that point. Though we reject the Catholic concept of a hierarchical priesthood, we still often find it necessary to confess our sins to someone, don't we? Yeah, we find it necessary to repent. And not just because James says, James chapter 5, confess your faults one to another, pray for one another that you might be healed. There's a commandment there. That application is if I sin against Josh, I should repent to Josh. If I sin against Nick, I should repent to Nick. It isn't if I sin against or Josh, I should repent to Nick. If I sin against Josh, I shouldn't go and tell Nick. I should go to Josh and explain it to him. Matthew 18 says the same thing, that we're to uh, confront when they sin against us, that we might pray together and restore them. And if they repent, we receive a brother. No priest involved. But I think we've all been at a place where we needed someone to help us out of wherever we were. Though a lot of you do jail ministry. You have testimonies of people in the jail coming to you wanting prayer, and they'll just tell you, I just feel so dirty, and you lead them in a prayer. You teach them how to confess that sin, and you're playing the role of a priest. 
Years ago when our church was judged by the Spirit of God because when I took over our church, it was disgustingly, egregiously filthy. This is why I have little place for seeker-friendly churches because I know seeker-friendly churches produce filth in the congregation. It's why we do a lot of what we still do even though I'm harassed for it and called religious and legalistic. But I cleaned up one pig pie of a mess in this church 15 years ago. When God judged us, the spirit of judgment fell upon our congregation and we were exposed in all of our sins. I didn't know everything that was going on behind the scenes because I was the new guy. And for an entire month, I had people coming to my office and they treated it like a Catholic confessional. And I had leaders in our church confessing pornography and alcoholism and disgusting stuff that I would have never believed was a part of this spirit-filled church. It just was a testimony that we were filled with a different kind of spirit because it wasn't holy. For whatever reason, those folks who were well-taught and leaders, they, they didn't feel like they could get it on their own. Confessing to the Lord and repenting was not enough, and I can't explain it, but I understand it. Also, that season reminded me very heavily of the book of Acts when Paul and Peter would preach the gospel and the whole town would fall under such conviction they would run home and bring their dark arts as like a public confession and burn it publicly. So everybody knew what they were doing in private. Why couldn't they just confess in private? Why did the Holy Ghost move upon that revival and cause for a public bonfire? There does come a time where it doesn't feel like we can get it on our own. And I'm going to tell you that's perfectly acceptable because we see biblical accounts of that. Again, the bigger point of this message is to understand Penance is a sacrament, a ritual that if you don't do, no power is available. We're never going to practice it like the Catholics, but we've always kind of practiced it like the Catholics. Until you confess your sins, he can't wash you and cleanse you. So it helps you understand the power of the heresy coming out of Malaysia with Joseph Prince. He claimed a voice told him that, and then the bells chimed to confirm it. And that's how he got all of his revelation, the bells chime. And one of his fathers in the faith rebuked him and said, the Holy Ghost ain't no set of bells. Like, that's a familiar spirit. But can you imagine a heresy that has swept the nation for the last 15 years that teaches Christians you don't have to confess. Therefore, there's no power available, no washing, no cleansing, no cleansing flow, no cleansing purge, no blood applied, just dirtball Christians thinking they're right with God. What an effective heresy. If you've ever expected an apology, God still does too. Another simple definition for penance is the confession of sin made with sorrow and with the intention of making amends, followed by the forgiveness of the sin. So we have to really define, and we will in a moment, what it means the intention of making amends. That begs closer evaluation, and we need to look at some semantics as we advance this. Quick, go with me to Acts chapter 3. If we get nothing else out of this pseudo-religious studies sermon, it's that we need to take sin a lot more serious and be willing to do what it takes to get rid of it. And I would also ask us, as you're turning to Acts 13, judge yourself and see what's working to privately pull you away from, from your God, the Lord Jesus, and what's working to pull you away from the church he's assigned you to. And whatever's su subtly, surreptitiously working to pull you away from your God, and the local church that you're called to, I think you need to curse that thing to hell and move away from it. I don't care what it is, a career, a hobby, a loved one. If they're trying to pull you away from your God and the church you're called to because you're not going to finish your race apart from your local church, there's an ancient doctrine about no salvation outside the church. 
Because if you're truly saved, he's going to point you to a church. Because that's the local body. That's the fellowship of the saints. And we live in that selfism, emotivism day where I can worship God at home. Yeah, you can, but not for very well. Not for very long. I can worship God in the deer stand. Yeah, but why not at the house of God on Sunday? That's selfism. That's emotivism. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Repent ye, this is King James, therefore, and be converted. King James says converted, and therefore we come up with the term conversion. But we think of conversion as total change. But the word convert is from the Greek word that means to return. So in our modern understanding, a conversion and a return are two different concepts. This simply means repent and get back. We think a conversion is like a convertible. It turns into something totally different. We call new believers converts because they were converted from darkness to light. But this is a call to return. And I, I want to make that distinction because the catechism does. And so it will help us understand some of their terminology. Repent ye therefore be converted that your sins may be blotted out when times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. So the, the formula according to Acts 3.19 is repent, return, and have your sins blotted out. Therefore, no penitence, no return, and no return, no blotting of sins. So returning requires humility. That is, you know, we call it backsliding, and it takes humility to turn back. For this reason, theologically speaking, contrition, that is to be contrite, and penitence, or to be penitent, is the same as conversion. So to be contrite is equated with conversion. When you're humble, you say, Lord, forgive me, I want back. Like the prodigal. In fact, the catechism quotes the prodigal some. Contrition and conversion are often used synonymously, especially in Catholic doctrine. This is because you can't return to God without first being humble. Now, also, the Catholics, in line with a lot of denominations and us, and maybe we should more, actually turn to um, 2 Timothy. There is a doctrine that is loosely held by us. We should probably grip it a little bit more firmly. That says forgiveness only comes when God gives you it as a gift. That's humbling. Because it would seem to say you can't repent just any time you want to. And there's a verse to back it up. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. In meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God perhaps will grant them repentance. If God perhaps, well, what if he doesn't? So a lot of churches, Calvinists included, Anglican churches, Catholic churches, they teach repentance as a gift from God. That you are granted the ability to repent as a grace-filled gift from God, and therefore we don't take it flippantly that I can just repent anytime I want to. That will humble you and cause you to walk softly. But the previous verse tells the pastor to be patient and apt to teach in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. We're to go to people who are opposing themselves and say, listen, what you're doing is wrong. You're hurting yourself. And the reason we do it is we're hoping that God perhaps will grant them the ability to repent to the acknowledging of the truth that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. The Catholics see repentance or returning as a gift from God that if not given by his grace, returning to him would be impossible. 
And that is why the Bible says today is the day of acceptance. Today is the time of salvation. We don't lollygag in turning from our sin. If you're convicted today, you repent today. If you're terrified today, you repent today. You don't lollygag and say, well, tomorrow. I'll repent tomorrow. Is this really that bad of a thing? Is this really not the will of God? If you're avoiding leadership, if you're skipping church, something has you hooked, sweetie. And it's reeling you in so slowly you're too stupid to realize it. Isn't it a shame we don't have these deep teachings on the doctrine of sin and contrition? Again, this word of faith movement for the last 30 years has been obsessed with getting your blessing on and believing you receive provision, prosperity, healing, and health. And we forgot how to please our God. Well, faith, faith pleases God. Faith for materialism? What about faith to hate sin? The sacrament of penance involves two actions, conversion, that is returning in one's heart toward God, and then the act of penance. So hopefully you're still following all this because even though a lot of this is Catholic, we practice it without even realizing we're half Catholic. Combined together, this conversion and penance is what their doctrine calls a second conversion. The first one being salvation or turning from sin as a sinner to now this. And they call this process, we call it sanctification. They call this process of conversion and repentance the uninterrupted task for the whole church who clasping sinners to her bosom is at once holy and yet always in need of purification and follows constantly the path of penance and renewal. This is the movement of a contrite heart drawn and moved by grace to respond to the merciful love of God. What we call sanctification would fulfill that. Sancti we would say, let's use our word sanctification and then give the Catholic definition. The uninterrupted task the whole church is responsible for. The whole church clasps sinners to her bosom and is at once holy yet always in need of purification and follows constantly the path of forgiveness and renewal. This is the movement of a contrite heart drawn and moved by grace to respond to the merciful love of God. So what we call the process of sanctification, they call conversion or returning and penance. And by that we both mean striving to serve God, failing, repenting, and getting back up again, moving forward in strength, never perfect in the flesh, but washed by the blood and forgiven by Christ's atoning work falling but always arising again to return to Jesus and maintaining a healthy relationship with the body of Christ, the local church, and God Almighty. Feels pretty much in line with what we believe. We just don't practice it because you know we're forgiven and we're Holy Ghost people. And who are you to tell me what to do? I want us to take our sin a little bit more serious. I want us to hate even the garment spotted by the flesh. Let's keep reading. I got to move quick. So this internal returning, we can't truthfully repent until we're first guilty, convicted, and have a humility. Think of it as repenting to a loved one. You can't repent until you're first humble enough to say, I'm wrong. Please forgive me. Even the Catholics acknowledge any outward action has to be first preceded by a genuine heart. The first action, which is what they call contrition or conversion, we would call it internal repentance, is the sorrow of the soul and the detestation for the sin committed together with the resolution never to sin again. I think we would benefit from that definition. What is your sin? We all have a familiar sin. We all have something we struggle with. If you can get to a place where you have a sorrow of your soul and a detestation for the sin committed, it'll help you resolve not to commit that sin again. We are too flippant with it. 
We're like, well, God will just forgive me. Or you know what? A couple days, it won't have to be brought up again. When's the last time we honestly stopped and said, God, I'm really tired of struggling with this. I'm sorry I keep sinning against you this way. I'm sorry I keep hurting my family this way. I'm sorry I keep hurting my marriage or my parenting ability or my local church. When's the last time you hated your flesh like Paul taught us to? When's the last time your, your heart, my heart, sounded just like Paul who said, Oh, wretched man that I am. I'm telling you, as charismatics, modernist Christians, we're way too flippant and casual with our sin. We're really, we're just pimping and whoring the mercy of God. And we don't sound like the Apostle Paul. You don't have to believe what the Catholics believe at all. But believe what Paul said. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? You hear the egregious disgust he has with what he was struggling with. And we're just like, I'll repent later. There's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. They're just a little too legalistic. They're just, come on, you know, I'll repent because they're so weak. Well, if you're repenting, it's because you're still weak. Yeah, we got to get a hold of this better. Without contrition, that is a humble returning to Christ, sins cannot be forgiven. Why? Because if you don't seek to return, you'll never confess your sins. And confession is paramount to receiving forgiveness. Catholics teach that Jesus' call to conversion and penance must first be internal and heartfelt. And they teach without internal heartfelt repentance, such penances remain sterile and false. However, the interior return to God from the heart urges expression in visible signs, gestures, and works of penance. And so the Catholic catechism calls repentance a radical reorientation of our whole life, a return, a conversion to God with all of our heart, an end of sin, a, returning, a turning away from evil with repugnance towards the evil actions we've committed. And I'm sure I personally have never heard a better definition of repentance anywhere else. Repentance is a radical reorientation of our whole life a return. Some of you have daddy issues. And because of that, you hop from boy to boy to boy. You're never without a boyfriend. And you keep them in secret because you know you're sinful. And this definition says a radical reorientation of our whole life, a return, a conversion to God with all of our heart. And even if you broke up with your current boyfriend today, you'd have another one next week because you're not healed. You're not truly penitent. You've not fixed the brokenness in you. So therefore, this is as far as you go in Christ. And he wants to help you. He wants to restore you. He wants to make you whole. And maybe it isn't a daddy issue. Maybe it's a porn issue. Maybe it's an abuse issue. Maybe it's an anger issue. Maybe your attitude is, ain't nobody ever going to get nothing over on me. Well, to hell with that attitude in your life because you're going to ruin everybody. As servants, people are going to take advantage of you and you're going to like it we got to quit fighting for our own rights. That's selfism. That's emotivism, thinking there's no greater cause than my own desire and pleasure. We're servants. You don't live in Israel right now. You're doing fine. You don't live in Afghanistan. You're doing just fine. You don't live in China. I don't know what you're bellyaching about. You don't have enough followers on your shallow existence called social media. What are you so upset about? Why can't you get right with God? I don't get it. And maybe, hopefully I never do. We need to aim for a radical reorientation of our whole life, a return, a conversion to God with all of our heart, an end of sin, a turning away from evil. And we, may we have repugnance toward the evil actions we commit. We don't think they hurt us, but if you could see every sin you commit as 
a seed of cancer and a rod of radiation in your life. You would hate it if you could see every sin in your life as a viper in your baby's nursery, as a nest of brown recluse spiders in your bedroom. You'd give your eyes neither sleep nor slumber till you carpet bomb that house with black flag or whatever the bug killer is that you need. You, you take your babies and get out of that house if it was a den of adders. But we just play games with it like we're okay. Contrition is followed by confession. And I like the Catholic definition of confession. 1 John 1, 9, you should know this verse like the back of your hand. We all should. Pastor Vaughn taught us years ago, you can't wear 1 John 1, 9 out. He said, if anybody could, I would have. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James 5, 16 says, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you might be healed. High churches, and we decide to find those as those that kind of have a priesthood, High churches see their priests as the instrument of God's mercy and forgiveness. And this is where the priestly confessional comes into play that we see in the movies, or maybe some of you were raised Catholic. We forego any intermediary because we don't believe in the hierarchy priesthood. We are a nation of priests. But we do, we've acknowledged already, we do often need that intermediary, that one who is spiritual who can restore us that we go to when we say, I, need, I just need somebody to talk to. Police do this when they got a suspect. They'll say, listen, if you'll just confess, you'll feel better. There is a catharsis that comes to confession. To hold that secret gnaws at you like a canker. To, to have to be so blastedly right. To say, I'm not sorry at all. Why can't you drop the charges and say, I, I was wrong. Please forgive me. Listen to the catechism's definition of confession. Confession of sins even from a simply human point of view, frees us and facilitates our reconciliation with others. You mean this will work in your marriage? To look at your spouse and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I, I had an attitude. To confess your sins one to another when you've been a little too rude, a little too common, to repent to your boss for being a lazy worker, you mean this would free us up? Continuing with the catechism, through such an admission, man looks squarely at his at the sins he is guilty of, takes responsibility for them. And there's the big problem because today's nation hates responsibility. He takes responsibility for them and thereby opens himself again to God and to the communion of the local church in order to make a new future possible. That's Catholic doctrine. If we confess our sins, we look squarely at our sin. We take responsibility. We open ourselves up to God to the communion of the local church, and we make a new future possible. I agree with every bit of that. It ought to encourage us to repent when we're wrong. We ought to be good at repenting. We're teaching our kids constantly, repent. Our kids are so good at apologizing to each other, now they get upset if the other doesn't say, I forgive you. Because now we have to teach our kids, say you forgive them, drop the charges. I want my kids to know they're going to always be judged, they're always going to be wrong, they're always going to need to repent, and they're always going to need to forgive, because that's a healthy believer. Those who are truly humbled and heartbroken will find no problem confessing their sins to God or to whomever they have harmed. Those who are truly humbled and heartbroken. And maybe that's the part we pray for, that God has not given you that yet. 
You can't see your own sin. You can't see your own pride. You can't see your own destructive behavior. Therefore, God can't possibly grant to you the opportunity or the ability to repent. Your own pride has blinded you. You think you're right where the rest of us are concerned for your salvation. That is why we must pray. That's why the Catholic Church says the church holds that sinner in prayer, burdening and laboring for their petition and their return and their repentance. That is why when you do come back, we'll tell you you're welcome. Because we were here all along repenting or uh, praying and interceding for your repentance. Because if you leave us, we're not going to be mad at you. We're going to pray for you because we know hell is about to befall you. Confession is then followed by satisfaction. And this is all Catholic terminology. So you have humility, confession, then satisfaction. We follow the same pattern. We humble ourselves, come back to God. He says, confess. We confess our sins. Then he forgives and is satisfied. But the Catholic definition of satisfaction goes a step further. On the face, we're going to reject this. And then as we look at it deeper, we're going to say, well, I do that. So then we can't really condemn them too much. So let's cover this real quick, and then I'm going to wrap it up. Catechism defines sin as many sins wrong our neighbor. One must do what is possible in order to repair the harm. So this is what becomes penance. It's an action that looks to right the wrong. Some sins we can just say, Father, forgive me. That attitude was horrible. Other sins are, honey, forgive me for calling you blankety blank blank. What is it going to take to earn your trust again? What is it going to take is penance. Cleaning up our mess is what the Catholics would refer to as penance. Some of us will stop short and say, well, I said I was sorry. And then I would say, okay, but how are you going to clean this mess up? I appreciate you saying I'm sorry, but I'm sorry doesn't clean the mess up. Proverbs 6 says, a thief must repay sevenfold. That's a penance. Issue public apologies for slander. That might be a penance. The law commands compensation for killed animals. That would be a penance. Our judicial system believes in penance. You're ordered to pay restitution. Penance would include repenting, repaying, restoring, etc. The catechism says sin also injures and weakens the sinner himself as well as his relationships with God and neighbor. Absolution, that is forgiveness, takes away sin, but it does not remedy all the disorders the sin has caused. So here's where we have to be careful in our criticism of Catholics, and we're not Catholic, we're not going to be Catholic, because we're actually doing Catholic. Father, forgive me, cleanses me, but there might be a massive mess I still have to clean up. And that requires penance. What do I do? How do I earn trust back? How do I clean up this mess? How do I get used again in the kingdom? What can I do? When we repent, it doesn't put us right back in line. There are oftentimes we have to start over. Penance is an additional act prescribed by the priest, this is their definition, that helps the confessor make amends for the sin with the intent of helping the believer, quote, recover his full spiritual health. So for the Catholics, penance will include prayer assignments, in my office, I would say, here are five scriptures. Go pray these every day. I'm feeling a little Catholic. I've met with a couple folks this week. I have pastor's prescription pad that we made up kind of a tongue-in-cheek. But I have so many folks come to me, and I tell them what to do, and they don't do squat for six months, and the mess stays the same, so they come back. So now I can say, I have a receipt from what I told you to do six months ago. Have you done it? 
what they call penance, we would call discipleship practice. So I met with a couple folks this week. All of them I gave scriptures to go pray these. That's penance. It's helping to restore the spiritual damage of your life. Offerings. Uh, years ago, somebody stole a bunch of money from Pastor Vaughn. They got so convicted, they came and gave a big offering to recompense it with interest. Now, the Pastor Vaughn did not prescribe that, but their own heart and the Holy Ghost did. Works of mercy, service to neighbors, self-denial, sacrifices, patient bearing of one's cross. And this is where the Catholics get accused of works. And I don't disagree that this easily could be abused and become legalistic and look at salvation through works. But I'm also trying to capture the heart behind this and realizing this pattern I practice as a Holy Ghost tongue-talking, demon-casting-out pastor. Ironically, the triple C follows up this section by saying, such penances only help conform us to Christ who alone expiated our sins. Yes, we give these assignments. The priest would give the confessor these assignments in the confessional. Go pray 10 Hail Marys. That's a prayer assignment. Go pray five Our Fathers. Go pray a century on the rosary and light a candle. All right. That's a little legalistic to me, but I do the same thing in my office. What do I do, pastor? How do I fix my marriage? Did you repent to your wife? Yeah. Then start doing this, this, and this. That will help fix the situation. And yet the Catholic stake say Christ alone washes our sins. For the Catholic, these penances are, according to them, fruit that brings forth proof that they've truly repented. That sounds like John the Baptist. The Catechism says these fruits are only effective when they're from Jesus, and by Jesus they are offered to the Father, that through Jesus they might be accepted by the Father. So for all the Catholic bashing I've done in my life, having never bothered to study their catechism, the, the foundation of what they believe, I would agree with probably 99%. Now how it gets executed and misaligned later, that's not my problem. We probably disagree with some aspect of this, but simultaneously practice it. We go to someone and ask them what we can do to stop feeling so guilty and what can be done to make the right wrong. We repay things. We, we take kids out. We give them extra attention. We're trying to right the wrong. We're trying to assuage our condemnation and our conscience. And a lot of it is biblical and accurate and necessary. Penance requires the sinner to endure all things willingly, be contrite of heart, confess with the lips, and practice complete humility and fruitful satisfaction. I like this definition because it says those that are truly penitent will endure anything given to them to do. And some of you have taught this with your prodigals. If they're truly penitent, they truly want to come home like the prodigal son in Luke 15, he did anything his father wanted him to do. He was willing to be a slave at the bottom of his dad's pecking order. Truly penitent people, even to coming back to the church, will do anything they're told to do. Now, in preparing for this, I asked Gadiel if I could use him as a testimony. So let me share his testimony as an example of everything we've just taught here. Gadiel came to our church when he was 20, and uh, not, he was there here for a while, and then he backslid, and he backslid hard for six years. And honestly, when he left, I thought we would never see him again because I was getting rumors of what he was doing in the community. It always makes its way back to the pastor. So in that regard, he's now fallen away. He's a prodigal. He's in the pig pen. I would run into Gadiel here or there, and he was always so respectful. I was almost a little suspicious about how respectful he was. Was he working at an angle? But he was never belligerent to me. 
he would stop by the church once or twice in those years that I was gone. I'd always have him up to my office and we'd talk in fellowship and I, I never beat him down, never condemned him. I'd just say, how are you doing? Really just trying to figure out how to help the kid. So when he started coming back, he's been back three years now. No, Gadiel's been back three years. So when he first came back, he came back and he came to my office without an appointment because you do that for prodigals who are humble. You don't do it for people that come to your church every week and don't listen to anything you tell them. And you don't make appointments with people who skip services. Because it's not fair to my schedule that you can't give me a Sunday night and you want me to give you a Tuesday afternoon. So he shows up and he says, Pastor, I need to come home. So that's contrition. Pastor, it's messed up out there. It's dark out there. And I know that if I stay in the world, I'm going to die. And I know, he said, I know I'm called to this church. He said, can I please come back? I know I made a mess. And I said, yeah, you did. And he said, I'll, I'll come late and I'll leave early and I'll sit in the back. I just, I know I need to be in this church. And I said, absolutely. I said, here's, and we made a plan. This is what you're going to do. And the only way, only place I failed was that I didn't tell the ushers he was coming back. So he shows up and he is an outlaw because he left us. He hurt some things here. And so the ushers were ready to toss him out by his curly menudo hair he had in those days. <laughs> but he did. He did everything I told him to do. He jumped through every hoop, every hurdle. He said, I'm sinned. I've sinned against my God. I don't want to die. I don't want to go to hell. If you'll let me back in, I'll do anything you require of me because I know I'm supposed to be here and I want to serve God. He's never bucked against anything. And honestly, in that regard, I, we did, he and I did everything the catechism laid out, minus a confessional and a caller. He came, he confessed his sins. He let me know the stuff he was involved in. And he even told me, he said, Pastor, I've heard them slander you at bars. And I told them to shut up. And I took my beer and went elsewhere. <laughs> I feel good knowing I've been slandered at bars. Run down at bars. That means the demons know me. And they drink beer at Chili's. Along with the Baptist deacons. I can make a Baptist joke there about the difference between a Methodist and a Baptist. The Methodist will acknowledge you in a liquor store. But then again, what are you doing there? <laughs> so he repented and he said, I want to come back. And we prayed. And then like this says, the penitent will suffer kindly anything given them. He said, all right, you do this. You come in late so that you're not a distraction. And as I'm dismissing, you leave early so you're not a distraction. I had to get a hold of the deacon and say, all right, Gadiel has come to me. He's not an outlaw. He's not an enemy. We've received him back. We'll walk this thing out. I've got to go talk to the people he's hurt personally. Make sure they're okay because if they're not okay, he's not coming back. Because they've hurt, he's hurt people here. And I know he wants back, but there's a mess to clean up. But he, would be, he was willing to jump through anything I gave him to do. And in that regard, it's very, been very much like the catechism on repentance, penitence, and, and confessionally. He was able to make restoration and do whatever needs to be done. And now, you guys all know Gadiel. We love him. He's joyful. He shows up and does everything. He serves around here. He's a delight. He's a soul winner. He's in Bible school. So it works. But I like it because the Catholics confirmed it. His humility and his desire to serve God allowed him to submit to anything this priest, so, so to say, put in front of him. And he did anything I gave him to do to make things right. 
And we still had a couple years where we were trying to pick up stuff and clean stuff up and figure out how we're going to restore that. And I'm not even sure we've fully fixed everything yet, but there's a lot of mercy that covers it. So that is, in a nutshell, the sacrament of penance. For the Catholic, it involves going to the priest, sitting at the booth in the confessional. They require you do it at least once a year, sometimes once a week. It's the way they expiate their sin. A priest hears it. He absolves them, says, may God forgive you. They believe it's because the priest alone has the right to, in the name of Jesus, uh, forgive sins. We don't agree with all that, but they do make this practice of repentance and restoration ceremonial. I'm not saying we need to do that, but it would be better that when you have to repent, you take it a little bit more serious. And Father, forgive me. I screwed up again. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. You maybe take a knee and say, Lord, I was a jerk again last night to my family. My husband deserved to slap me. He should have, but the cops would have been called. Help me stop being such a mouthy wretch. Or Lord, help me stop being such a jerk of a husband. Or Lord, help me stop being such a sneaky, sly young woman with daddy issues. Maybe, maybe we should practice just bending a knee. Anything we can do to make it more than just a simple confession. Though I know it is a simple confession, so I don't want to undermine that. My part is, my heart, I want us to take it serious so that we're more heartfelt when it comes. When we have to conf uh, confess stuff to our kids, not every time, but we'll gather them around and say, hold on, kids, we want to talk to you. We were wrong, and we want you to know we were wrong. Would you please forgive us? We do make a little bit of a ceremony about it so that it's more serious. There needs to be a little bit more of a suffering on our part when it comes to making things right. Because it'll teach your heart not to take this so flippantly the next time. Quit, quit abusing people's mercy and good graces. And honestly, when your heart is penitent, you'll do whatever's required to be right with God again. Does that help us this morning? Do you, that's a lot. That's a theology lesson. That is, um, that's five pages of notes on catechism and uh, penance. Hopefully you see the heart behind it. We looked at a couple scriptures. That way you know we're coming from the word on it, quoted a lot more. Let us do what we can to be cleaner and to take our own sin a little bit more serious, realizing it does break our fellowship with our God. Jesus Christ died to atone for it. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, and it is that simple, but we shouldn't take it that simply. Let there be a little bit more of a weightiness to it. Just like if someone were to give you a gift, you wouldn't just say, awesome, and chuck it. You'd say, thank you, thank you. You might even be moved to go home and write them a thank you card just to let them know again how thankful you are. My point is let's do whatever we can to take this a little bit more serious because we're dealing with the blood of Christ and God's son on the cross of Calvary, not so that we can flippantly say, forgive me, God, I call myself blessed, but Lord, thank you for the price it took to make me right with you. It is not by works, it's by faith, but there is a mess to clean up sometimes. Amen.